I don't just openly believe anything, but I do know that anything's possible and our beliefs create our reality. So if we believe something, it's probably going to be true. And breatharians will say that, like, if you believe that you need to eat food, like, do not attempt this because you will have a lot of issues. But if you can start to train your mind to realize you don't need as much, most breatharians, there are some that eat nothing, but most of them eat a very, very, very small amount. Greetings and love to one and all. It's Ben Hardy, co-host of the Terrain Theory Podcast. This week, my co-host Mike Miranda and I invited Joshua Greenfield onto the show to talk all things food. Joshua was once host of a food show on YouTube that garnered millions of subscribers and eventually ended up on MTV. He gave it all up when he realized a disconnect in his relationship with food and became disillusioned by the way food is so often portrayed, especially through programs and shows. In his current incarnation, Joshua seeks and teaches a more reverent, authentic approach to food. His journey has taken him as far as training to be a breatharian, which we discuss, but also in teaching others about mindful eating and cooking, music as medicine, the magic of going barefoot, and much more. For many of us in the States, this episode falls in the days before Thanksgiving, a time of the year defined by food. Our hope is perhaps you take something from this conversation that can be applied to whatever sort of celebrations you experience in the coming days, weeks, and months. Lastly, please consider leaving a review or subscribing to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. It helps us reach new audiences and expose them to these conversations on the terrain model, alternative healing modalities, and of course, the after party in the pineal room. Speaking of, let's get to it. Welcome back to Terrain Theory. All right, we are live. Joshua Greenfield, welcome to the Terrain Theory Podcast. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. You have an interesting backstory. Love it if you could share that with the audience. Mm, yeah, where to start? Um, well, I live in Boulder now, but I spent a good chunk of my life in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, originally just from the East Coast. And yeah, I moved there. Just I was in a band trying to kind of make it as a rock star, you know, do that whole thing. And during that time, we moved 2007, 2008 hit, and that was when the recession hit. So suddenly um, I lost my day job and all my friends around me were freaking out about money and finances. And um, so I just started looking at my life and thinking to myself, you know, what can I sort of take away? What actually is essential essentially to live this life that I want to live, follow my dreams. Um, and that journey just sent me kind of on a wild ride. And kind of around the same time, I was already questioning a lot of things. I was feeling kind of lost and depressed. And um, that led me down more of a spiritual path, I guess you could say. I don't always love using that word, but it kind of made me question who I was and what I was really here to do and what was the purpose of life. And just different things in that regard from, you know, trying to follow this passion and make sense of life and look at all the things that I was told from how I was born, you know, and, and raised and questioning everything um, took me to like, look at the way I was eating um, and look at the way I was doing a lot of different things. And I started to see how much of my life was um, conditioned and, and made up and very much based around fear. And when I really started diving into these fears that I was told and, and things I was told to believe that didn't make any sense, um, my whole life opened up in this new incredible way. And I started learning about health and 
Um, it wasn't just about taking the pharmaceutical medicines that the doctor told me to take, but you know, it was much more about tuning into my own wisdom and learning what worked for me and what made sense. Um, yeah. And I could go on and on, but it, it basically wound up where my brother and I were starting to cook for a lot of people to just survive in New York city. And we had a friend clay that was living with us and, um, we had a friend Adam who was filming what we were doing and, people just started to connect to it. We were these sort of like hipster-esque musician people kind of getting weird. And then we put out videos on YouTube and Vimeo and it just kind of took off. And um, of course, it's a whole long story, but next thing you know, MTV's reaching out and signing us to a deal. And um, yeah, it led me down quite a wild journey, um, which ultimately led in me leaving all that behind about four years ago um, when I started to just notice I wasn't having a healthy relationship with social media, um, and with food, and I saw how powerful food was as a medium to help people heal, um, not just so much what we're eating, but also how we're eating. And food was kind of becoming this bastardized food porn. Everything was about the food. And I was like, no, food is this amazing vehicle to transform our lives. Um, but people are kind of putting food as the star and not making food the vehicle to be the thing that challenges us, that inspires us, that connects us. Um, and now I live in Colorado and yeah. And that's what I'm really focused on. I'd love to learn a little bit more about this experience when you were sort of at that that peak of, uh, let's just say, like fame and celebrity. Although I don't like those words, maybe the yeah, same way yeah, you don't yeah. like spiritual. But what do you remember that moment or the moments where you started to look at what you were doing and the way that food was being represented, and you went, "This this doesn't feel right." What what was that moment? Yeah. Um, I mean, there were a lot of different moments. And, and I guess what was interesting is before I got into that kind of celebrity world um, of food, I was uh, practicing Buddhism for a while. And I was seeing this amazing art of impermanence and how you know, they would, the, the Buddhist monks would take all this time to create these incredible mandalas, these amazing works of art, and then just wipe them out in an instant not holding on to it, but just being in the moment and then it's gone. And I was like, oh, food is the same way. We build these plates up. We spend all this time cooking. And then we the act of eating is the act of destroying it. Um, so that was kind of my first like foray into the, that side. But when we started the cooking show and I had already gone on this kind of awakening journey, if you will, um, I, I saw that I had to kind of take on a character and, and sort of play out some version of an old version of myself that at least that was what I told myself this is a way people can relate to me so I kind of took on this persona of you know being kind of the kind of weird quirky older brother and and doing that and playing this thing and trying to slip in these little bits of mindfulness um, and when I saw that it was working you know it was exciting and things were growing um, but the more and more I created that character I felt stuck and trapped by it and so when I would try to do something a bit more out there and more in this mindful eating space, a lot of people responded negatively. And at the time it was just, we had so many people watching that it was really hard for me because I was like, no, I'm, I feel like I'm creating this monster in some ways and, and, and playing into this, yeah, this whole food porn and, and food, food, food thing. Um, but I was noticing that I didn't feel good when I was eating certain foods and I felt much better when I was eating other things. Um, and I had a partner at the time who had a lot of food allergies and we were studying just like the emotional side of eating and people dealing with trauma growing up and a lot of autoimmune diseases that were associated with that. And so we started looking deeper into that and started doing these mindful eating experiences where we would blindfold people 
and take them on these like culinary journeys. And people were having these amazing like experiences where they're saying things such as, you know, I, I had this memory as a child and I remember sitting at a dinner table and my parents were just fighting all the time and I was just stuffing food down my face and eating. And, and now when I eat, I have so much anxiety. So I started looking into that side of like, how can I bring people into a state and also myself, because I grew up in a very similar way of just like feeling a lot of anxiety with food. How can I create this state where I can actually be more peaceful and help other people experience that as well? Um, and just to share even more of a backstory, when I grew up um, as a little kid, I used to choke on every single meal that I ate. And my parents didn't know, you know what to do. So they would literally just take my legs and turn me upside down and shake me. Um, so my introduction to food was basically that. Um, so for many years, even through high school and part of college, I had this deep fear of choking. Uh, my mom, even in high school, gave me the Heimlich because one time I started choking on this bagel that I was eating. Um, so for me, fear just created so much, or eating created so much tension and fear in my body um, that it, of course, became the thing that transformed the way that I eat and really forced me to slow down and, and be more mindful. You talk about going deep with food. Like, how deep can we go? How deep can we uh I mean, we can definitely go very deep. Um, yeah, to go back to this concept of it's not so much what we're eating as how we're eating. And of course, you know, there's a there's a physical nature to what we eat and things affect people and people might have allergies in this. But I like to look more to the energetics of food because there's an energy, you know, from my experience, we're, we're these solid beings on one level, like living in the matrix. But when we step out of that and we realize that we exist as energy and we exist as presence. And you can look at this from quantum physics or holographic theory. You start to realize that you're not actually this solid being. So the things that we're consuming, you know, we might look at food as one type of consumption, but there's also sounds, the music that we're listening to, the sights that we're taking in, the feelings that we have on our skin. Everything plays a role in how we feel. And I've found that the more conscious we are of the things in which we consume, then it's like our internal programming starts to change and then our physical external reality changes as well. Almost like a computer program um, in a sense where if we change the internal programming and, and kind of get that understanding, then the world that we see outside starts to shift. And what I completely found in my experience of health is that growing up, I had a lot of health issues and you know stomach problems and headaches and you know heartburn and all kinds of stuff. And you know, I tried to do, tried to help that with what I was eating and I was taking medication and stuff, but it wasn't until I really looked at my relationship with what I was eating, where it was coming from, you know, growing my own food and that kind of stuff, but also just the act and the state that I was in that I actually started feeling better. And now I'm at a point where I, I can really eat anything, um, and feel fine there. I obviously have preferences, but like I make everything myself. So if I wake up in the morning and I'm for some reason craving ice cream, you know, I've been able to create a relationship with that where I could eat ice cream in the morning and still feel totally fine, if that makes sense. Sort of remarkable. Um, it's funny. I'm a musician as well. And often I just had some folks over here in my studio and I was playing them some music. And I, I've made a point these days to turn the monitor off when we're listening to songs because it sounds different when you're not looking at it. It's like when you mentioned the blindfold meals, that's what I thought of. Mm. Yeah, there's this incredible thing that happens. And I urge anyone out there listening that is looking to just kind of get into more mindful eating to eat your next meal, even for the first five minutes with your eyes closed. 
And I always say eat with your hands because, you know, if you can avoid the middleman, which can be the fork, um, it just creates a more intimate connection. If you're touching the food, you're feeling the sensations, you're smelling the food all before you eat it, all this stuff is playing, you know, into how you're experiencing the food and it's helping with digestion, even just chewing food more slowly instead of your body having to rely on doing all the digestive work, suddenly, you know, your teeth and your saliva are helping to break it down. So some people are like, well, you know, I deal with heartburn or, you know, gastrointestinal, whatever. And of course I'm not a doctor and I'm not ever going to pretend to be one. Um, but from my own personal experience, when I started slowing down and eating food more presently and chewing and, and even closing my eyes, I started tasting things much more intensely I started getting full quicker, so I wasn't eating as much. I didn't have any sort of stomach or gas or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I joke that I have a book that I put out, um, I guess, last year now. And one of the subtitles was like The Secret to uh, <laughs> the Miracle Poop. And I like to look at the poop and, you know, and also the urine, like just seeing how the bowel movement is going can be also a big note in that. And I found that when I'm much more present and slow, I just... I barely have to wipe. And to me, that's like the ultimate uh, <laughs> thing you could ever ask for. Uh, a clean poop. It's interesting mm -hmm. eating with your hands. I had a real transformative experience around food when I went over to a couple's house and the husband is from a, an Indian family. So he has Indian heritage and he created a traditional Indian meal and it was you know like five courses, but everything, we ate everything with our hands. And he was, uh, he was funny about it. He was like, look, if you want silver, you can have it. You know, he was, he was very aware that we were having a meal in the United States where it's customary to have forks and knives. And I was all in on having this, this more like authentic experience with this delicious meal that he created. And it was, I, I, I actually wanted to go on and eat everything from that day forward with my hands. There was something so profoundly intimate about it. And it's in the moment, yeah, like your hands might get a little messy, particularly if you're eating certain, you know, like some of these Indian dishes. Yes, you, you know, you're going to have food on your hands, but you've got a nice, like a wet washcloth right there that you easily wipe off with. And there's no, there's no comparison between eating that way and then going back to eating with a fork and knife. I, I wish that we would adopt that practice in this country um, or absent that. I wish that every listener would at least try that experience like once and then see, see what, see what they, uh, mm -hmm. see what they think. Yeah. And if you really want to go hardcore, you could skip the hands and just do what dogs and cats do and just go straight in the mouth. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel you I actually had a, my best friend growing up, um, from a young, from like the age of seven to maybe 12, um, he was Indian. And I remember going to his house and it was just such a different experience. The smells were different. Everything about it felt very different and unique to me. And I, the thing that really stood out was that they would all eat with their hands and there would be a plate of rice and yogurt and spices and they would eat with their hands. And of course at the time it, it seemed strange, but when you really look back and you think about babies, you know, they're, they're eating with their hands, foods all over their face, they're messy. And they're having such a sensory experience and then at some point we get domesticated and we're told to just like sit properly with our head up, you know, and kind of with the napkin and whatever. Um, I love licking my fingers and, and making food fun because for most people, especially in our culture today, food is this, 
it's the centerpiece of so many things. People are excited for it. It's the break that we get to have at work. We get to come home or, you know, after a workout, whatever it might be. Um, and there's so many people doing diets and restricting and, and, and I understand there might be a place for that, but I've found personally and, and through a lot of the people I've worked with that if you are mindful and you're not like, I need to lose 30 pounds in 30 days, but if you're really committed to, Hey, I just want to change my relationship with food that over time, very slowly and subtly, you will look back and realize, wow, I actually understand what I can and can't eat and how my body feels. And food is an amazing source of medicine. Um, and I, you know, I will feel much better. And that's, that's been my experience. And, um, that's why I don't say I limit myself to things. Of course, I, there are things I don't desire to eat. Um, but that was just through a natural process. You know, I grew up eating so much fast food and I was, to me, fast food was the best stuff. I had a mom and she was a terrible cook and things have changed, which is cool to see, but she was not a good cook. And that's what really drove me to becoming better at cooking. But for a long time, it was, I just want to eat fast food and not seeing the connection between eating, you know, a Big Mac and fries and a 20 piece nugget and feeling awful, not like really understanding that that was why. Um, but I also knew for a long time that it was bad for me and I didn't just stop, but rather the more I became conscious of how I was eating one day, it was like, I walked by McDonald's and I just felt sick and I was like, Oh, I just don't want to eat that. It wasn't like willpower or trying to force myself to not eat it. Cause I knew it was bad. I knew I had an addiction and the way that I broke it was through this slow process of being really present with how I felt to the point where it just didn't even like, I don't even want that. Or when I tasted it, it tasted like chemicals. And I was like, oh, this is weird. I'd rather make it myself. Uh, where where are you on the meat vegetarian uh, debate? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I eat everything. Um, and yeah, I think to each their own. Um, I've found that a lot of vegans that I know that I never thought would start eating meat have at least shifted to either meat or started eating more eggs and more like raw dairy and stuff. Um, I try to just focus on the quality of ingredients and, you know, we, we do grow a lot of food. I raise rabbits for meat. Um, we have chickens for eggs and some meat. Um, we harvested a roadkill deer this year. So we have a freezer full of, hmm. of meat as well. Um, we have a midwife, who brings us raw goat milk and we plan to get sheep and maybe goats next year. Um, so yeah, I think to me eating the best quality I can find is important. However, I don't want people to feel guilt or shame um, around what they can and can't get. I think whatever situation you're in, you can find a unique way to start to bring in these little habits and things that make sense to you. Um, and I've spent so much time. It's just been the number one thing to me. Like most of our money goes towards food that we're eating um, because we love doing it. We're not just doing it because we want to eat good quality stuff. It's also like a, it's a meditation. Every morning we wake up and we we're tenders, you know, I'm chick I'm a chicken tender. <laughs> I, I tend to our land and we're always working towards this kind of homesteading self-sufficient thing. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll eat it all. Um, when people ask me my allergy restrictions, I just say, I like, I just like good food made with love. It's beautiful. Yeah, I'm. I've been transitioning. I'm not quite as far along as you are, but um, again, as a musician, having been on tour for 20 years, and then all of a sudden stuck at home, um, you know, it, this is, I guess, my third season. But like, you know, I'm eating a soup right now, and it's it's bone broth from the cow that we bought down the road, and it's shiitake mushrooms and wine caps from right here in my yard, and carrots that I grew, and Swiss chard that I grew, and parsley that I grew, and 
some of those meals I'm 100% sourcing and I feel really proud of those moments. It's not all of them, but occasionally the stars line up. It's like this whole meal came from, if not just my yard, certainly my uh, community. And it's it's very empowering feeling. Mm, yeah. That's awesome. But it takes it takes a minute. Like it doesn't happen overnight. I want to I want to instill that with the listener. That's like, uh, you know, to start a journey, you must first begin it. it. It can take several, many seasons, many years. I mean, I mean, your journey. How how long have you been on this journey? How many years has it been? Um, s- seriously, growing for the last seven years. I mean, I was living in Brooklyn for a long time, and and we had a rooftop garden, and my brother and our friend Clay, um, they really took that over because I was still spending a lot of time in the music world and helping to produce our albums and. Um, so they, they created this beautiful rooftop garden and but we're in Brooklyn. So it was a very different kind of thing. And that's what called me out to Colorado and the mountains and just having more space, um, and getting more into permaculture and homesteading. Uh, it, it really is like a, yeah, like you said, you start kind of start now. Um, but it's, it's such a journey that I can't even really comprehend. And it's never really about the destination. It's just this, this journey and this desire to grow food, opens up so much in the world. And I think people often get stuck in these ideas of like, oh, I have this goal. And if I achieve the goal and I get to this place, I'll be, in, no, it's like the goal is kind of irrelevant right. once you get there because the journey through that you've totally changed and you've up leveled and you've grown and you've learned new things. By the time you get to this goal, it's almost like, cool. I mean, it was great to have a goal to take you on the journey, but you're a different person. So maybe your ideas are different or maybe you realize that that thing you desired it's kind of a superficial thing and there's something else that actually feels more authentic. Um, so, I mean, I see that in so many ways and I noticed that when I first started growing food, I just like, I got a quarter acre in Denver and I just wanted to have a food forest. I heard about food forestry and the idea of like having a forest of food just seems so cool. I just walk outside, <laughs> pick apples and cherries and yeah, and chard and all this stuff. Um, so I bought the biggest trees that I could find and, you know, they're, of course they're expensive and I put them in the ground and I'm just like, all right, like I want to have food immediately. Um, but as I started slowing down and, and really getting connected to the process, I'm like, oh yeah, picking a fresh apple is amazing, but so is just putting your hands in the dirt and just like mixing soil. It's like, I can't believe I that I love this just as much or just feeling my bare feet on the ground is as rewarding as it is to eat an apple. And just as like a little aside to that. I did a bit of an experiment where I planted these big, like seven, eight foot fruit trees. And then I also planted some much cheaper, like, you know, one foot fruit trees. And I went back um, to my old house recently and the one foot tree has outgrown all the other trees because it didn't require as much to, to care for it. And it had more time and it wasn't as shocked to being transplanted from such a big age. Um, So I just thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. There's some wisdom in that for sure. Yashua, you, you've already talked a little bit about some of the ways that a listener can develop a more mindful approach to food, but I'd love to learn a little bit more. Like, let's, let's go deep on that. What are like tactics or strategies, mm. like day to day, even meal to meal? Like, what are some ways that a person can do that? Mm. Yeah. I mean, first step, I mean, of course it goes into there's cooking and the growing and those things, but let's say you're just somebody who is at work and you don't even have the opportunity to grow your own food and cook it and you just have a meal in front of you. Well, imagine you're, you're working a job and you're at a computer and in one scenario, you know, you're working through deadlines and you're typing away and you're stuffing a burrito down your throat. Well, that same meal 
if you were to just take a little time, sit down, close your eyes, even for a moment, take a deep breath, maybe express some gratitude. I always like to do a little bit of a prayer and it doesn't have to be to anything specific, but just gratitude for the fact that you even have this food, really tuning into the amount of people that made it possible, the amount of hands and farmers and, and the plants and the trees that made this meal that you're holding in your hand, which could be a conglomeration of ingredients from who knows all around the world, or maybe in your backyard, whatever it might be, just to feel that appreciation. Something about that space of just pausing, slowing down, closing your eyes for a moment, taking a few deep breaths, uh, even checking in, like, do I feel tension? Do I feel like I need to rush? Is there some sort of tension being held in my chest or am I holding? It's very common for people to just like hold their breath when they eat. They're like, mm -hmm. and I know that's something that I struggled with for a long time of just like holding my breath. So I like to just tune into my body and try to get into this meditative, relaxed state. Once I'm in that state, then I might touch the food. I always like to smell it before I eat, just taking a few moments to just you know, just, just taking in a nice whiff, a nice smell to kind of really connect my senses to what I'm experiencing. And then from there, when I'm ready, take a bite, slowly, slowly chew. Now, I'm also not saying I'm perfect. There are times when I eat faster. But even if I'm going through a meal and I'm feeling some kind of rushed, I've trained myself to pause and stop and be, wait a second. Even if it's the last bite you're able to savor and be more mindful of, even just that will slowly ripple over. So rather than try to think you need to change everything or do as I do it in, you know, like this, it's such a slow process that if you can make these tiny little moments of just remembering to, you know, sit down and ground yourself first. And the other piece, um, my partner, Aja and I, we eat most of our meals in silence. Not all the time. I mean, I love having dinner parties and gathering and talking, but to me, food is an intimate thing. And I, I think, uh, you know, it's like akin to having sex. Would you be, you know, making love to a partner and also having a casual conversation with somebody else at the same time? And it might seem ridiculous, but when you really think about it, you know, what we're eating is, it's becoming a part of us. We're consuming it. Um, and the act of doing that is a very intimate thing. It's literally becoming a piece of us and going to affect how we feel and you know, our mood and our energy and our health. So to be trying to do that, you know, at a really loud restaurant, having a conversation and, and feeling all the energies coming in, it, it affects you very differently. So we've gotten to a place where we often eat meals in silence, or maybe we say a few things, but we've just found that ourselves both naturally, we just like to kind of tune in and be like, no, let's honor this process. Let's honor this thing that we're eating. And then we can get back to having a conversation. So then, th then we expand that, that rule uh, around Thanksgiving, no religion or politics to just be like, no, no talking at all. <laughs> we're just, we're going to have a Thanksgiving dinner in silence. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think especially with family, um, as they, I'm sure you've maybe seen the, the quote or the, the picture of like, if you think you're enlightened, you know, go home and spend the weekend with your, or like go back Thanksgiving with your family. Um, yeah, it's, to be able to cultivate that would be really fascinating. We actually, we host private retreats at, in our home and, um, we always do a silent day for people and it's something that Aja and I have just in our own life, pretty much every week we do one day of full silence. And if we do interact, it's very minimally and just kind of a, you know, maybe like a, a funny gesture or something. Um, but there's something about being in that silence and eating a meal in silence that really, um, yeah, it's such a great reminder of what food can be.
that's all that's all beautiful and and beautifully said i'm I'm thinking about my own routines and my own relationship with food. I grew up in a household with two brothers, and particularly when there was a meal that that my mom made and my 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 mother to her credit like probably ninety five percent of the meals we ate was homemade um mm. she would make but when it was a meal that we particularly enjoyed there was this mad rush to get your first plate done so that you could get back for left, you know, for the seconds before that all ran out. (laughs) And I think that that trained me (laughs) to eat my food. Almost like a dog, you know, you look, you watch a dog eat a meal and they're not savoring that thing. They just wolf that down, but that's a survival tactic. You know, they need to get as much food in as they can because they don't know when the next meal's coming. We have a better idea, better security in our lives usually about when our next meal is going to arrive and we're not uh we don't literally have to fend off like another pack of of wolves but that's how i was that's how i was raised and so as a result i do find myself eating faster than i probably need to but the other thing is i've got a 7 year old and i'm curious about your your thoughts on this because i notice that when he eats he will sit for a moment and then he likes to like kind of wander. He'll get, he'll walk away from the table and there's something on his head and there's a, there's a book and something he wants to show me or, and I notice, and I let him do that. I don't make him sit in one place if his, if his urge is to like move in any given moment. And I notice that when he's out, like if we go to a restaurant or we visit uh, friends or family and he does that, I'm much more aware of it because no one else seems to be doing that. And I wonder your take on that, like moving and eating or taking a break from that meal, stepping out and getting away. Is that like breaking from the mindfulness? What is your take on that? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you, you know, ask that question because I grew up with, um, pretty extreme ADHD and from a young age, I was diagnosed when I was nine and put on Ritalin and then for years kind of on Adderall and, Um, really the thing that shifted that for me when I stopped taking medication in college was being in a band and realizing that, oh, I could focus for hours and hours and hours on music, um, without this Adderall. And here I was told my whole life that I had learned disability, that I was, you know, all these different things. So, um, I've always been kind of a wanderer and sort of all over the place. And when I really dove into ADHD and, and started looking at it, not as a label, but like, what are these things that maybe make my mind different? Um, and started looking at hunter gatherers and how there was much more of this, like when I'm hiking and, you know, I'm, I pretty much am barefoot all the time and we live in the mountains in Colorado and there's snakes and, you know, bears and cacti every, everywhere. Um, and we'll do a lot of off trail hiking and I have to be so aware of so many things that I'm tracking. I'm looking all the time and noticing sounds. And, and, and even though, yes, we live in these like more modern worlds, I still really enjoy connecting to that primal side. So I see how they play out with me. And, and to what you're saying with your son, um, not to say that we're the same in any way, I, I don't know your son, but I sometimes do that as well, where I will be like eating a meal and sometimes there'll be something else that comes up in my mind and I'll get up and, and do that. Um, what I've done in terms of understanding these things is just being mindful of whenever I, if I am going to pause for a meal and get up and, and go do something, I don't see that as necessarily taking me away. It's just like, okay, I've had a little bit and I want to go focus on something else for a bit and come back. As long as I'm present in each of those moments, 
that feels more important to me than like, I need to be stuck on this kind of one specific thing. Got it. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I, I, uh, I do find that the, the meals that where I'm most present are the ones where I'm sitting down with my son, uh, which mm. is, it's just really nice. And it's, it is an opportunity for me to try to retrain myself away from some of these habits I developed as a, as a youngster. And hopefully I can, uh, encourage him to slow down. Although at seven, you know, there's only so much that you can impress upon a, a child. It's more, I guess, by, um, by example, like leading by example. Yeah. And the other piece I'll just say too, to what you were saying with your brothers is, I mean, it's a really interesting point about like the survival side and, and how we, we aren't necessarily in that state anymore. And what I've noticed with food becoming so much more like of a thing in our world, um, it feels like every movies like the, just the, the way people portray food is very different now and there's so many cooking shows and it seems like everybody has a cookbook and all this stuff um there is something about the event of eating and this is why i think mindful eating is really powerful is because you don't necessarily have to eat as much to experience a certain level of like enjoyment and pleasure whereas somebody might you know scarf down half of a pizza and the reason they probably want more isn't because they necessarily need more it's just that they didn't have that much time actually enjoying that thing that they enjoy to do. It might've been 10 seconds and it's gone. So by eating the same amount of food much more slowly, I find I naturally hit this point where I'm just like, I'm good. My body has time to actually alert me that I'm full. I never get full to the extent that I used to get. I mean, I grew up playing, I was wrestling and I played football. So I'd be like playing football at like 170 pounds and I had to wrestle the next season at 135 and lose a ton of weight. Had a very weird relationship um, with food in that regard as well. And what I noticed when I was around my football friends and I was much smaller than they all were, but we would just stuff ourselves silly with food. And to the level of fullness where it's uncomfortable and like, you know, you kind of want to uh, my friends would, I never like to do that, but you know, throwing up and just like eating way too much. And now I notice that if I feel full is it's my body telling me, okay, you're good. And if I walk away from the food, the fullness goes away very quickly. It's, it's a different type of fullness. I'm not pushing through that level, um, because I've allowed myself to enjoy and to eat and to chew the food and to savor it, that I'm tuning into that wisdom that's inside of me. And it's saying, Hey, you're good. And there's something about the more we connect to that internal wisdom that I think we all have, which is unique to everyone, which is why I wouldn't tell somebody, this is what you should eat, or this is how you should eat. I can just offer my experience and say, hey, if you really find and you're discerning it, what works for you, over time, you'll very likely just feel better. And you'll probably notice a lot of health issues that you had go away. Do you still play music? Yep. Well, music, I mean, if I... If I had to choose between food and music, people would ask me this. Like, if I could only survive on one, I would still choose music and just see how long <laughs> I could go. Um, but they, they're such great balancers. Um, and just to share a little bit about my kind of music journey, I was pursuing, you know, that life as a musician, rock star, that whole thing for a long time. And I just kind of came to a point where I saw the industry of it, and I also saw the the music as medicine piece. And I just decided to lean into that side more and study vibrational and sound healing. And, and we started a song circle and it's really more about just helping people feel this sacred connection to using music as a tool to connect to yourself and to other people. Um, so music is, yeah, we play all the time and it's, it's my life force still. I've never heard of anyone doing a music fast. That's something to explore. 
Yeah. I've done some um, pretty serious fasting and also I don't know if you guys know much about uh, like breatharianism. Um, my partner and I in Costa Rica a few years back, we did a whole initiation to, um, and this is to take it deeper, I guess, but, uh, we did a whole initiation to, you know, become breatharians. And ultimately we decided that we love food, um, <laughs> and we're going to keep eating, but the mental side of being able to go a very long time without food or water that will stick with me forever. And that's why in a way I don't really see what I'm eating as like physical um or it's more about the energetics of it because in breatharianism i think one of the things that sold us initially was we were watching this documentary and the guy was talking about how like once you're a breatharian you know you're being nourished by pure prana by like energy life force if you do choose to eat like you're just eating for pleasure so you could eat you know cake and ice cream and we're like oh that sounds great let's uh you know let's explore this um but regardless of my experience of eating because i do love it and i think on a social level and you know just to connect to to nature that way it, it feels really important to me but having gone through that experience um it's nice to know that if i were in a position where i couldn't eat for a long time or if i'm lost in the woods or whatever that i have this training and i wouldn't freak out and um i would just be at peace uh, Yashua, we have not dived into the topic of breatharianism on this podcast. I mean, Mike oh. and I are both somewhat familiar with it, so I would love to go a little deeper and learn a little bit more about what that training entailed. Yeah. Um, so I first heard about, um, there's this book called the, Gra the Holographic Universe, and you know, it's the concept that we live in a hologram and or something very similar where every piece is connected to the whole. And the book goes into the science of it and quantum physics and, you know, mind creates reality and that kind of stuff. But then it starts getting into these other aspects of it and how miracles and how telepathy and how all these different things make sense in this holographic model. And there was a section in the book where they talked about these people who um, had claimed to go years without eating or drinking anything. Things that, of course, science would, for the most part, would just be like, you're out of your god dang mind and, um, and all that. So... Um, I, but something about it to me, I was at a very open time in my life where like, yeah, that's, I can see how that's possible. Um, you know, they were, they were talking about, they would have scientists would watch them for days and, and months and they wouldn't take in a single thing and they were still totally fine. And, um, it just kind of blew my mind, but I knew it wasn't the time. Um, so I had done some fasting up to like five day water fast, um, and saw the benefits of that. But when I met my partner, Aja, and she expressed interest, we decided to start looking deeper into it. And during all the lockdowns, we ended up uh, moving to Costa Rica for a period. And there was this guy, Ray Moore, who is kind of like the breatharian spokesperson. A lot of breatharians, from my understanding, they like live just in the jungle and you'll never see them and they're kind of away from society. But he was this guy, this kind of good-looking Israeli guy, and he had a documentary where he went eight days without food or water and, and doctors were saying he was going to die and all these things were going to crazy were going to happen. And they tested him and, and his blood levels were totally fine the whole time. And, um, and there was a documentary called Living on Light, I believe. And they went into all these different um, breatharians and some people were like interested in it and wanted to pursue it. And then there were other people that just woke up one day and they just weren't able to eat or there's this famous um, guy from India who as a kid, he just couldn't take in food, anything he ate, he just purged. So he's like, well, I guess I can't eat. And for like 40, 50 years, he has claimed that he hasn't eaten or drank anything. And 
he was also tested in a hospital and they couldn't believe his body was like regenerating fluid somehow without him taking anything in. Um, so I'll first say that, um, I don't just openly believe anything, but I do know that anything's possible and our beliefs create our reality. So if we believe something, it's probably going to be true. And the breath of will say that, like, if you believe that you need to eat food, like do not attempt this because you will have a lot of issues. But if you can start to train your mind to realize you don't need as much, most breatharians, there are some that eat nothing, but most of them eat a very, very, very small amount. Um, and it's oftentimes, you know, for whether because they're working in society and it takes a little bit of more energy or they just enjoy eating. Um, so for us, the initiation was seven days. And the first day you're drinking like diluted juices. And every day you're doing these energy practices to just like really cultivate your own internal energy and your chi. Um, no technology as well. So we're in the jungle with no technology, no connection to really outside world. Um, we had somebody like in the area, the neighborhood, like if we needed something to check on them or whatever, they were available. Um, and then so yeah, day one, diluted juices. Day two, just water. And then three and a half days of nothing. And the reason that this particular one was three and a half days is because that was always the the thing they said, you know, it was, it was like three weeks, no food, you would die three days, no water, you would die. So it's kind of like getting over that sort of initial perception of, oh, if I don't drink for three days, my dad always said that no water for three days, you'll die. So it's like being able just to go just enough to be like, oh, I'm fine. Um, and then once you do those three and a half days, then you slowly bring back in water and then slowly bring back in diluted juices. And if you were to continue on with the breatharian path, you would be um, going, I guess it was like two more weeks of just like basic juices and some broths and nothing else. Now we decided, oh, we really love food. Let's like, we ended up going to Mexico and kind of going a little crazy, but we, <laughs> we started at, at first being very mindful. So our introduction back into food, I ate one piece of boiled green banana for like 30 minutes, just nibbling it like a squirrel. Um, and it was like a shamanic eating experience. It was incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of takeaways. Um, I'd say the the biggest thing was how slow time moves. Because someone who cooks a lot and, and enjoys eating, not cooking, not shopping for food, not cleaning, not eating. Even if I woke up and I played guitar and I read books and went for a walk, it was like there's what do you do with the other 20 hours? And you're sleeping very little because even though you don't have that much energy and you, I felt like I was in slow motion the whole time, just like very slow. Um, I, you know, you're not, you're not eating much, so you don't need that much time to sleep, which is also interesting. Ben, I remember you, you mentioning that when you did your, what was it? Eight day water fast. You said there's so much, so many hours in the day. Cause you, those hours weren't consumed with thinking about food or prepare. Well, may, maybe thinking about it, but not preparing food, not eating. And right. the days just seemed to go on and on. So yeah, in the midst, I didn't do eight days. Somebody did. I I've only done three and a half days yeah. of nothing. Yeah. And then I mean, five days of just water. Yeah. And yeah. and how heavily were you leaning into breath work and energy work in the, in when you were in the thick of it there? Yeah. So the, this, online thing we did the only reason it was available was because of covid usually this guy and other breatharians often do in-person stuff so he made this whole training available online because of the lockdown um so there was a lot of meditation 
you know, a lot of energy practices just to be doing throughout the day. And some of it was like, I don't say required, but it's like, okay, do this energy practice in the morning and do it the evening. Um, and then there are other things that if you want to do, you can do, and here's what's available. Um, but a lot of it was just sitting and being in that discomfort. Um, some of the things that are amazing is how often we were mm. peeing. Like you're peeing like five, six full peas a day, even though you haven't drank mm. anything. And on the third day, I had so much energy, I couldn't believe it. I had to do a whole like workout just to fall asleep. Like something kicked in on that third day where I was like, wow, I feel like this incredible amount of energy. Um, and, you know, I'm sure different people will say different reasons why. But for us, what it really came down to was that like as, as Ray Moore kind of calls it, it's almost like a, a psychic surgery where you're training your being how to consume food differently. We're so trained to consume just, you know, you know, this kind of oral experience, which can be great, but it's like really training your mind and your entire being to take in energy in a different way. So a lot of the meditation and, and breathing practices were around like just imagining and visualizing that experience. My intro into breatharianism came via a gentleman I knew. It was a, it's like a wealthy trust fund guy who just went off into the world and explored. And I ran into him maybe 15 years ago when I was doing a, a specific cleanse. And he mentioned he had written this book and he had, he had learned from this Indian guru that you could exist just on sunlight. And so, it was sort of, I guess it was a version of breatharianism. And so he wrote this book about it, and he encouraged me to try it. And I read the book, and I and I did try it. And I was uh, cutting back on my food consumption while at the same time getting up in the morning and basically sun gazing for in increasing amounts of time. And then at the end of the day, doing the same thing. So barefoot, watching the sun come up, like making sure I had no glasses on, no contacts on. And this is in defiance of what we're taught. Um, is dangerous to look at the sun when in fact I found that staring at the sun the first minute, two minutes, three minutes, like all the way up to maybe 20 minutes at the start of the day as it's just coming up on the horizon is perfectly safe. And mm -hmm. I noticed just anecdotally a, a major increase in my ability to like focus and my overall energy throughout the day, even as I was not eating as much as I normally used to and was as active as I ever had been. So I'm curious in your training for breatharianism, um, where did like sunlight come into play? Yeah. So sun gazing is a big part of it for some breatharians. Um, we actually did a, so where we were, it was challenging to sun gaze. We were up in the mountains and in, in, in uh, Costa Rica, but right after we went to Mexico and we were staying at the beach. So every day we would do sun gazing and that was just kind of to keep part of that process going. Um, I was also training to run a barefoot marathon in the mountains in a few like weeks when we came home. So I was starting to take in some food, but I had this idea in my head that I could run the marathon at least at some point without anything. Um, so it was like, let's see how far I can go. So I was doing these 12 mile runs on the beach and I wouldn't eat anything or bring any water or anything. Um, and that just felt yeah, just felt I felt really light and really clean, and I was really getting into that mental mindset of like, yeah, if if I'm gonna run, I don't want to have to have all kinds of stuff on me, especially that long. So how long can I go with just my body? Um, sun gazing, there's yeah, there's a lot of different kind of things around it, but uh, I don't know if the book was Diary of a Yogi 
or what do you remember the name? No, it wasn't um, that. But yeah, it's just definitely a common practice. And I agree. A lot of people are, of course, told all these things about the sun. And that's where life gets fascinating is that like when we hear one belief and then it becomes this echo chamber and people just kind of take it for granted. And when you start to open up to one thing isn't true that you thought was true, well, then how could anything be? And that to me is always like my driving force in life. Like what was I told to believe? And how can I kind of break that conditioning and see what else is out there? We love yeah. having people like you on this show, Joshua. <laughs> yeah, we're in the. As Tom Cowan says virology is a gateway drug. I heard someone else say that chickens were a gateway mm. drug <laughs> recently. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Joshua, so at what point did bare, going barefoot enter the picture for you? Hmm. So. I grew up in a household surrounded by feet in a weird way. My dad's a podiatrist, uh, and now my sister also is too. Um, so I was always seeing pictures of x-rays, and I was in his office, and just seeing the nastiest <laughs> feet you could ever imagine. Uh, and so I, you know, he had told me that I had flat feet, and he made me orthotics to help with my arch. And I just I tried them, and I hated them. I, I have distinct memories of putting my shoes on and being like, oh, this is awful. And growing up, I was always like in Birkenstocks or sandals, and I just never liked wearing shoes. But I was an athlete, and I, you know, it's like you had to wear them. You have to wear cleats, you have to wear socks. Socks are stinky. I had an athlete's foot. I just didn't like anything about shoes. The whole like having to go to a shoe store and pick out a shoe, and you walk around in that little circle, and then like you have to decide for the next year what your feet are going to be in. I hated it all. So I was always very minimal and, and barefoot whenever I could be. But when I moved to, I moved to Colorado and seven years ago, but then, you know, kind of did some traveling and came back just two weeks before the pandemic hit and moved into this beautiful place with my friend who invited me to live with him. And I'd been going through a divorce and was just kind of in this very open state of like, who is this new version of me? I sold my business. I left my partner and my house and dog and everything. And I'm just in this new state of like, what's possible and the first day I moved in, I was talking to someone and I looked up at the mountain behind the house and I said, you know, I think I'd like to try to hike that barefoot someday. I don't know why I said it. It's just, I said it. And my friend was like, I'll do it with you. And so for the coming weeks, um, we had all these trails around our house and I just started hiking and hearing that little voice in the back of my head say like, take your shoes off, take your shoes off. So I started taking my shoes off. And even though I knew barefoot was a thing to some extent, I didn't know about like being in these very intense environments, being barefoot. It just seemed kind of nuts to me, but something in me said, I don't care, do it. And within a month, I just was totally hooked. And of course, like, you know, my dad and sister were like, you're crazy, you're going to get hurt and all this stuff. And people are looking at me like I'm a madman on the trail. Um, but I just absolutely fell in love with being barefoot. And then in the process learning more about the foot and seeing, you know, what I call foot prisons and all this stuff. It just opened my world up to a whole new reality. Um, and when I read, I read, somebody told me to read Born to Run around that time. And something about being barefoot and reading that book, I always hated running. Even in sports, I dreaded it. But I started creating this style of running that I call dance running. And it was more about just like being this very kind of flow, some might say like chi running, this kind of very flowy, fun state. And suddenly running became incredibly enjoyable because, you know, you're running on these different surfaces and up and down and all around. And um, that led me to saying, hey, what if I try to run a marathon barefoot and do a mountain that no one's ever tried before? 
And that's when I really was like, okay, I need to really understand all this stuff because everybody's asking me. And I started making some videos kind of for fun on TikTok. And all of a sudden my feet are getting like tens of millions of views <laughs> and seeing how many people out there were either disgusted or excited about it. I was like, okay, I guess it's time to write a book and let me make, you know, do a course on being barefoot and really just give people good information on how to become barefoot or make that transition. Or if you're not going to be barefoot, how to at least love on your feet. Because I don't think everybody has to go barefoot and it's not so much about that. To me, it's more so about how can I appreciate this thing that is the root of my body and take care of it. And if I'm going to wear shoes, maybe there are shoes that actually fit my foot really well. Do you, is there any merit in some of those grounding sandals or shoes that I see coming on my Instagram feed every six hours or so? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of research and, and people and claims that um, you know, grounding mats and 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 wearing more grounding type like earth runners, you know, just shoes that are going to connect you more to the earth. I just tend to, it's kind of like the the eating thing. It's like I just skip the middleman and go right for the the actual earth. Um, but I think again, it's all a spectrum, and whatever you can do makes sense. A lot of people have you know have to they can't be barefoot for the conditions that they're in or it's actually snowing right now outside. I mean, I'm often barefoot in the snow, but that's not always the case for people. So I just try to put my feet in the ground as much as possible. And I noticed that most people don't realize how rare that is for them. I even see people running on the beach or walking on the beach in shoes, which seems kind of crazy to me, but I get why and it's like if you would just take your shoes off even if you're not running or walking just put your feet in the ground feel the connection to earth there's a reason our, you know they say the sole of our foot to me it's like the soul is in the foot it's the thing that connects us to the earth that helps us release electrical energetic charges and um and grounds us in a very simple way so you have a lot of people out there that are like oh, i don't feel grounded i need to be grounded i need to do this meditation practice or yoga and it's like cool but have you just actually literally put your feet in the ground that's actual grounding like so you could do all these things to try to feel grounded or you could just go outside and put your feet in the ground and see what happens i, I was just going to ask do you do you go right through winter barefoot more or less i'd say um 95 of the time um i mean we're pretty high elevation and it gets so if it drops really cold you know if we're in the teens and it's not sunny out um i'll put something on maybe it's a wool sock i have like a minimalist boot that this company soft star shoes sent me that's really cozy i think when i first started i was definitely more extreme and i was like i'm the spokesman of being barefooted and if somebody sees me with anything <laughs> on you know it'll ruin it all and um so i was like trudging through the snow and and um, now I find like I might take something like a sock and maybe put it on and take it off and put it on if it's like incredibly cold because it's not worth like certain risks. Um, but that being said, going back to this mindset, you know, a lot of it is like tuning in and I'm sure you guys, you know, see all the stuff that Wim Hof is doing. He's also been an inspiration for what's possible. So I, I try to be responsible um, and, and not set a bad example for being barefoot by like freezing my foot off. And I'm always pushing what's possible and um, noticing what my body really wants. And if it's like, hey, you need to put something on right now, I'm not going to let, I'll check my ego and do it. But I, most of the time, like I just love being barefoot and I very quickly get uncomfortable in anything. So I just take it off. I love skipping the, skipping the middleman. Um, yeah. You're indoors right now. Uh, 
right right now, Yashua, and the listener can't see it, but I imagine you've ripped up all the floorboards in your house and you're just standing on the dirt <laughs> the dirt floor. <laughs> that is that my both our, my partner and I our dream is to have a dirt floor. That's what I we. I, I just think it would be the coolest thing to just. I also barefoot aside, like the idea of like having to be clean. Yeah, you know, I'm no matter what clothes I'm wearing, I try to have like my nice clothes and my like farming clothes. Everything becomes dirty because you you know you're wearing something nice. Let me just do this yeah. one thing real quick, and then shit flies all over yeah. you. So like I never liked the idea of having to go into a home and you know have to clean my feet off. And of course I'll do it out of respect. I go to someone's house, but like I like I'd love to ultimately live in a home where things can break and I can fix everything and things can get dirty and it doesn't matter and it's all part of it. So I built a like little greenhouse last year and I was standing in it and, you know, it's very basic and very simple. And I was like, oh my God, this is my dream home. Like I built it. So I know if anything breaks, I can just fix it and make it better. I can be dirty all the time. There's crap everywhere. And this is amazing. I feel so like, I feel so comfortable. Um, Cause I do, I have a sensitivity and if I'm in a place where I don't feel comfortable, it's really hard for me to be myself. It's the same thing with what I wear. I tend to, even in the winter, I mean, it's it's probably like 25 degrees out and snowing and I'm wearing a tank top. I might put something on to go outside, but I just like wearing as little as possible and being as free feeling as possible. And I think most clothing in our society is designed to kind of keep us very rigid and very stuck. And I can't, I just can't do it. I, I wear a lot of women's clothes because it's more, they're more comfortable and more flowy and free. Yeah, the man skirt. That's yeah, got oh, yeah. that's that's got to make a a surge somewhere in society. Fermenting with your best friend. What's the story there? Oh yeah. Um man, it it was a project that kind of came out of nowhere as as all my books do. So, I have a a book series and this is the sixth one in the series and they're all the first one's conversations with your best friend and I have walking barefoot with your best friend and dancing with your best friend. So they're each about the same concept through different mediums. Um, and the general concept is, and I can tell you the, the subtitle of the book is how to ferment and preserve anything, question everything, and ultimately learn nothing. And the kind of idea behind that is that there's so much information in the world and people are taking in more and more and more. And you can go look up a recipe or how to do something. But if you don't know how to discern through all of that noise and actually figure out what makes sense and what's true to you, it's going to be very challenging. So I love to ferment um, to really like bring life into food and to unlock nutrients and, and you know, make, it, make them more tasty and preserve them and do all these things. Um, but on my journey, there was a lot of confusion around it. And there's a lot of fears and people are scared. Am I going to get sick? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Um, so the more I got into fermentation and making sourdough and doing all this curing my own meats and making cheese, the more people are asking me, you know, I love your food. How do I do this for myself? And I just decided one day, you know what, I'm just going to write a pamphlet and just give it to some friends. And, you know, 400 pages later, it was a book. And it's like, whoops, I guess that just happened. <laughs> um, so it was a really exciting process. And all the other books in this series, I give away for free um, just because they're, you know, they're just written. They don't, this one has like pictures and recipes and it's a whole thing. But I like sharing information and, you know, we have a baby on the way. Uh, and so people were like, okay, so you're not going to give this one away for free, right? You're actually going to like sell it and you have a baby. And, you know, I was like, okay, I guess I will. So I put in extra time into making this book really succinct and um, really knowledgeable. And it's really everything that I know about fermentation and preservation 
um, to trying to make it accessible. But unlike other fermentation books out there, it's not just about how to make things, even though that's very much in there. It's also how to be more mindful in your life and how to use fermentation as a tool to transform yourself and to look at things differently and to question not just food, but to question everything. So throughout the journey, you're learning about these fermentation processes and it's also asking you to kind of look deeper into who you are and you know who you believe yourself to be and what you can be. If the listener was going to start with your series, which book would you recommend they start with? Hmm. Uh, I mean, Conversations with Your Best Friend is the first one, and it kind of lays out my sort of understanding and philosophy of life, if you will. But I think whatever speaks to you. Um, so the, the Barefoot book, for example, um, Walking Barefoot with Your Best Friend, the concept is that the shoe is kind of like the false self. When we take off the shoe, there's this incredible thing underneath it. But most of our life, we were kind of imprisoned by this false thing. And that the way that that affects everything else in our life is very monumental once we see it. And that's how I see the false identity that people take on, these characters that we think we need to play. And the journey of awakening, as I've seen, is taking off the mask and saying, whoa, I thought I was this whole person or trying to be this person. I'm not. So who the hell am I? Um, so like, if you're interested in get, being barefoot, um, it's a great help, like understanding and almost book to help you like learn more about that transition. And for me, it's never just about the shoe. I think it can be very easy to get caught up in just the thing, but to me, anything you look at can show you anything else. I love that. And Joshua, as we're approaching the end of the, our time together, ask you the question that we ask all our guests. And that is what are your non-negotiables, the daily habits that you do to tend to your terrain? Hmm. Non-negotiables. Yeah. I mean, in some ways my, the things that I quote unquote must do dictate what I have to do. That makes sense. Like I wake up in the morning and, um, I have a lot of different projects. So speaking of fermentation, there's things bubbling and oozing away. Um, so I take the time to look at these different projects. If something needs attention, I'll do that. I, I go look at the animals and the chickens and the plants. And um, so that kind of starts my morning. So my meditation has shifted over the years from being something where I'm just, you know, sitting in a room quiet to actually being in this more active meditation practice. Um, but in terms of non-negotiables, I'm trying to think if there's anything that's like super non-negotiable. It almost feels like my life is just more of being in this certain way of always being aware of what makes sense. So like the foods that I'm eating, I'm always doing what I can to eat locally sourced stuff, stuff that I'm growing or that I know where it comes from. Um, and continuing along that journey, always trying to, to learn more and experience more and expand what's possible. Um, and then when it comes to, you know, who I spend time around, um, in terms of more of a non-negotiable, I really try to focus on being around people that I relate to, that I feel good around, um, that I feel some sort of connection and not having to put on some kind of a front. Um, spending as little time in, in cities as possible and being in nature as often as possible often feels really good. Um, yeah, and otherwise, who knows? <laughs> and where can the listener learn more about you and your work? Hmm. Um, you can find me through, if you search for You Enjoy Life, I have just some different, you know, YouTube, Instagram-y kind of stuff. And then if you go to youenjoylife.us, 
that's where you can get download all my books for free. And I have a mailing list where I send out some different things and um, good resources on whether it's like being barefoot or some things on music and cooking. Um, I tend to be a little all over the place, but intentionally because all these different things are things that I just really enjoy. Um, I'm not trying to have one specific niche. It's more about like, these are the things that make my life feel really full and I like to share them with you in whatever way feels right. I love it. We'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, Yashua Greenfield, thank you so much for joining us on the Train Theory Podcast. It's such a pleasure. You guys are awesome. It was really great chatting. Thank you for having me. Thank you. After party, the after party in the pineal room. It's the after party in the pineal room. Mikey Mon. Benny Boy. What do you think of Yashua? I love him very much. Uh, this is another one where I was going in cold. Uh, in fact, I didn't even know we had an interview today <laughs> until very recently. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was, um, he really casts a beautiful spell in just his way of being. He's very, very peaceful, very peaceful gentleman. I knew you'd love him. And Sometimes a musician like to, to boot. Yeah. Yeah, I knew you'd love him. I did not know about the overlap, though, in um, in musical circles, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. When he you said Boulder. Some, so you got, yeah, so you got some folks, listener, there's a lot that happened off the air, but um, there's some folks that played with Mike and Ruthie and the Mammals in the past who uh, who are out there in that area in Boulder where Joshua lives, and they've actually played together, so... It's just such a small, such a small world sometimes. Yeah, it's great. Really, I love making those connections. I look forward to hearing his music too, because I, it's, I forget if this was during the conversation or in our post wrap, but just this evolution for me from all music all the time, essentially, into um, what we do now and incorporating that and seeing how they fit together is, is very akin to Yashua's story that really resonated in a very validating place for me. Yeah. Uh, and I was, it was cool and unexpected that we got into breatharianism. Yeah. And, you know, I knew about like his food journey and the barefoot piece, but I was not as hip to his experience in breatharianism. And, and that's a, that's a fascinating one. And one that really does defy everything that we're taught, right? If three days without water, you're going to die three weeks without food, you're going to die. And there are people out there who've said, yeah, I don't think so. Well, but it's it's that mental piece, right? If that's what you think to be true, then... Right, start there. So be it, yeah. right? I mean, it really made me realize the fear porn that we're always inundated with, that we've grown up with, you know, food shortages, water shortages. Um, I mean, I'm not to try to uh, minimize the importance of clean water and, and real food. I mean, we're always on the on the war path trying to, to make those uh, a reality in our lives or many of us are, but, but just the education piece that you don't, there doesn't need to be the anxiety attached to it. There doesn't need to be the fear state attached to it. If you can cultivate um, the confidence that you, you can make it through, you don't need as much. And if you set your mind to it, you can actually be okay with nothing. So related to that, great points. So as I'd mentioned in the, man, the Amanda Vollmer episode, I think it was in the after party, 
just back from New York City with a buddy of mine who runs a brewery, and he was invited down by the the Simons Foundation as one of 13 breweries that are in the path of totality of the upcoming solar eclipse, which I want to talk about in a second. But I was packing my bag for this trip to New York, and I was like, ah, I should probably bring snacks for the plane and looking at like the travel itinerary and going like, ah, when am I going to get food in? And then I remembered like I've gone eight days <laughs> without food. And I was like, uh, forget it. I'm fine. Like I'm not going to have breakfast. I'm not going to worry about when I'm having breakfast. I'm just going to drink my water and not stress it. And I actually felt much better in travel situations on an empty stomach. And even like going into this situation where there's all these new people and you've got to do like speaking, public speaking, like I'd actually prefer to not have any food in my in my stomach. I actually feel like clearer and lighter and That's more wild. present. Yeah. So um, to to your point that like, yeah, if, if something happened and all of a sudden I didn't have access to food, like some catastrophe or something, like I'm okay. And I know that eight days was like just scratching the surface. Like I could, if it's wintertime, I'll just melt snow and drink water for 21 days like people do. And then, and then some, and I think I'll be fine. Yeah. And because you know, you have the confidence, you have the mental peace dialed in. Yeah. And right. then, I, I, you know, go ahead. Well, I still, I, I find that I love that approach. It's like, well, what am I going to eat for breakfast? Well, fuck, just don't have breakfast. If it's going to like, that, that's the healthier choice sometimes. But I still find that if I have something, quote, to do, like an interview or a gig or, you know, whatever, a parent-teacher conference or whatever, whatever it is, that I still have that that insecurity that I'm going to get the, quote, low blood sugar or something, that I want to have something in me. But I like that you've sort of um, surmounted that obstacle where it's like, well, no, I'll, I'll be fine. You just decided that you'll be fine. I, yeah, I actually go the opposite way. This past weekend, I was down at my alma mater. My old soccer coach was getting inducted into the Hall of Fame after like 33 years of coaching. And he asked me to in, to introduce him. And I was like stressing what I was going to say in front of this like crowd of, you know, this, this crowd of people. It's going to be live streamed and everything. And they're serving yeah. dinner at this whole yeah. event and like appetizers and dinner. And I was like, I barely, t- I had like a little bit of salad and a couple bites of chicken, you know, <laughs> everyone else is like filling their plate and stuff. I was like, I don't, I can't even think about eating. I don't want anything in my stomach hmm. as I'm about to go. Like you're different. You perform all the time, right? I'm not as accustomed to being up on the stage. And of course, public speaking, like most people be like, eh, it's like, you know, my biggest fear sure. second maybe to death or something. But, uh, yeah. I just, I felt like, no, I don't even want to have anything in my stomach. I'm just want to be crystal clear. So that's, yeah, that is the approach I take. I love that. Um, this, this, uh, sun gazing, getting your nourishment, your energy from looking at the sun back to this trip down to New York city, because this is all in preparation. So what this foundation is trying to do is like create partnerships around the eclipse because it's a big deal. It's a, it's a total solar eclipse. Uh, and we've got this, we're in the path. Like I think you're in the path of totality. So April 8th, 2024, like three o'clock in the afternoon, um, this you know, 13, 14 states up or in, our, in our area are going to experience it. And there's going to be like millions of people who travel to this band uh, in the US to be able to see it. And this foundation, which is really steeped in science and um, contributes a lot of money to scientific research 
which we can also get into, wanted to partner <laughs> with breweries because like they know breweries drinking beer, like people bond over beer. So they wanted to have these breweries come and maybe like put out a special, you know, eclipse beer and sort of unite and bring people together. And there's a lot of conversation while we were there. Like they actually uh, zoomed in a guy who like specializes in creating eclipse events. And they're talking about like, you got to wear these special glasses and you got to make sure you don't buy counterfeit glasses on Amazon because that was a thing for the last eclipse. Uh, and everyone remembers like, you know, the beam of Donald Trump during the eclipse, like just sort of looking straight up at the sun, like having been told, everyone's being told like never look right at it. And he's like looking straight up at it. <laughs> and there's part of me because of where we are in our journey and our question everything mindset now, and also knowing having this experience sun gazing at the beginning and the end of the day and realizing like, oh yeah, this actually isn't going to hurt me. Like I'm not burning my eyeballs out or my retina. And I wonder, Michael, like we're told, do not look directly at the eclipse and wear these special glasses. What is being kept from us? Like what would happen if you do look directly at the eclipse for like the, the few minutes that it is completely covered? What could possibly happen that would absolutely benefit you that they don't want you to know about? It's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question. And now, so we have between now and April to decide if I'm going to be the guy that just stares <laughs> directly up at the eclipse the entire time. And then like my body just, <laughs> you just vanish or I just vanish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I ascend. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would yeah. not rule it out, Benjamin. I would not, although I'd like you to be present for a bit Thank longer. You. Well, I'll still, I'll <laughs> I would, still I would always be here. I would miss you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and then again, this is not an encouragement to anyone out there to to do that, but it does make for interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I have an unhealthy relationship with food. Like that. That's what I that's one of the reasons I was really excited about this conversation because even in these like little bouts that I've done with cleanses and with fasts, like I recognize that I have and have had for a long time an unhealthy relationship with food. I do not, I'm not mindful when I eat, like not nearly enough when I am, I notice a difference and I notice like all the positive benefits from it. But a lot, there's so many times when I'll like read a book while I'm eating or even like, be right. on my laptop, like be on, be working while I'm eating. Right. Like how, you know, sometimes I'll watch something like on the, you know, on the TV. Uh, and it's, it's just not, it's not healthy. It's just not healthy. And it's not giving the food, the respect it deserves. Like, I think that's what I need. If I re reframe my mind that way, like I need to respect this meal, this food better than I am. Um, I think that's, what's going to probably bring me back around to doing more of what, what Yasha was doing. Yeah. It was inspiring for me as well. I think I've been more similar to you in that, uh, often on the road, you're just like, sort of like, it's that whole fill the void mentality. It's like, okay, it's like, let's, let's get a meal in so we can make sound check in time or let's eat, you know, before we have to sing in an hour or whatever it is. It's like, just like checking it off the list often yeah. in the work, in the work paradigm. But the idea of eating with your bare hands actually really appeals to me. I could see my my family just being like, okay, dad is gone. We've <laughs> lost him. <laughs> it's the bridge too far for them. I can already see it happening. But it makes a fuckload of sense, right? To have yeah. that like 
tangible and to like smell your food and just be with it and just like be in the moment with it instead of just doing the rote thing with the utensils that really uh that really that's gonna be that's gonna be a habit stack maybe maybe in the meals where i'm by myself to start yeah but i'm definitely gonna incorporate that one and I, i had to laugh when he said like the next level is when you just you know, bend over like a deer and eat it. You used to remember I would send you videos of me like eating, uh, I don't know, like some sort of some greenery from the yard yeah. and, you'd, and you'd be like, you grazer, you. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, I, because who was it? Was it Zach Bush? It, it was, was Zach someone, Bush. Yeah, yeah. 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 Who said, just eat it right from the branch, right from the ground. There's like a, there's a difference energetically yep. when you do that. Yep. yep. And he's right. Yeah. That was like one of the first habits you stacked, wasn't it? <laughs> Just <laughs> grazing like a cow. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you're out there. And it's sometimes when I'm in the garden, I'll just eat a berry right off the right off the branch without without picking it off first, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love that this episode is will will come out before Thanksgiving because it's it's going to be. Hopefully, it serves as a reminder to folks out there because what. I mean, my Thanksgivings, and I'm, I'm sure there are others out there who feel the same or experience the same, but it's like you shovel all this food down, like mounds of foods, more food than we should should have presented to us at any one meal. And then you're shoving like dessert down your, and then you're just like passed out on the couch. Like how many, how many people is this the scene? Like two plates, three plates, then dessert, couch for like football or whatever's on out. Yep. And that's me. I've done that so many past Thanksgivings. Yeah. That's most of us. It's almost like a, a running joke in the family that, you know, how long until I pass until I just fall asleep because I've over, <laughs> I've overeaten not so much in the past, like couple of years, but um, right. I, I really want to, you know, well, I, I just encourage the, I guess, encourage the listener that this Thanksgiving, like maybe, take a little time if you don't already as a family or an individual, like get that moment of gratitude and then just be a little slower, a little more mindful with every, with every chew. And yeah, just, you know, I think most, I think, you know, especially at a Thanksgiving meal, that's more ceremonial. There, you know, often there's a grace or a prayer or just a moment of gratitude for sure. But it would be nice to just not just have it be like, check, check it off the list. Oh, yeah, we said grace now, like, you know, dig in, like to, to have the through line go through each bite without being obnoxious about it, but just have that presence of mind throughout yeah. the meal. It makes a hell of a lot of sense. We have to thank every molecule of water in, <laughs> individually <laughs> and you and you and you. I mean, that's what actually, that's what it, that's what it comes back to, doesn't it? It's like the gratitude, uh, the saying thank you to your water is the same thing saying thank you to your food. Like, are you affecting the water that's in your food and therefore the effect that the food has on you? Yeah. Well, I like that he said, and this is on one hand is very obvious. We all grew up with you are what you eat. Right. But when he said it's becoming part of us, yeah. like it's saying the same thing, but it recontextualized it somewhat. That's much more intimate and much more doesn't get more intimate and personal than it is becoming you. Yeah. And his idea that him and his partner just sit there and eat in silence, like really have reverence for what they're becoming is, uh, it's really beautiful. Very beautiful. Yeah. Well, here's the changing mindset around food. More. I, I love time. it. Ben, so many, especially early on, like we would harp on the basics, like 
you know, whether it was like the Wim Hof cold water or breathing correctly or sunlight um, and just food, like the, what we take for granted. We talk a lot about like the quality of food, you know, um, local food, organic food. Um, but he, we're just, now he's just talking about like how we eat, like the process of eating. Again, so rudimentary, but something we've very much lost track of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Having the coming off of this conversation, if it were still an option, would you have Carl's? Carl's Jr. Like fast food? Yes. No, I don't. I don't. I I shouldn't say that. I don't not have fast food. Like family will occasionally do like a Chipotle or a Five Guys uh, meal here and there. I haven't written off fast food completely, but I, I do have and maybe it's foolish, but I, I would only do like those two. I wouldn't do Carl's or Popeye's or McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's. Like I, <laughs> I picked my battles in the fast food market. I've limited it down to those two. Folks, Car- uh, Carl's is a a food truck that. Oh, was Carl's! Around. You're you're, I, you're talking about Carl's. I thought you yeah. meant Carl's Junior. The fast no, food no, chain. No, no, Carl's. Carl's. Oh, UH. I would fucking do Carl's. I still oh, do. Look at him. He came I, around. I. And maybe that's mind over matter, right? Because it's just nostalgia and pure joy and memories yeah. and friendship and, and Carl himself, you know? Yeah. So yeah. this was, okay. So this was, we grew up in Durham where UNH is University of New Hampshire and there was a parking lot. Was it C-Lot? I think it was C-Lot, right? I think so. A, a parking lot at, um, at UNH where this food truck, Carl's, used to be parked in the evenings on like weekends. And it was an institution. I mean, it, as long as I was in Durham, Carl's was there and it's been there until apparently like this past, what this past spring, I think. I, well, that article Is that, that, correct? that, that uh, either you or Alvarez sent today was from 2018. So, oh, okay. Think, so 2018. Yeah. So, but, but it was still, recently, still pretty recently. And, and he started in the seventies in the seventies. And this was where you went. So college students, you can imagine just getting hungry you know, drunk and hungry or whatever. But even as kids, like middle schoolers, high schoolers, we would head down there and it was, the ordering process was, was crazy. He had all these like weird, like code words, right? Snotties. So snotties was just your cheese fries. Um, What were some of the other ones? Well, little guy and big guy were your little burger. and, And if you wanted cheese or if you, you know, lettuce, pickles, you know, running through the garden with sneakers on, yeah. Uh, there was some other more untoured <laughs> code remember, words yeah, as well. Okay, yeah. And I we, think that code system evolved, as I understand it, is because you could also get things that weren't on the menu. Uh, wink, wink. <laughs> if wink, you knew, wink. Just, knew just what to say. Right. Yeah. Anyway, an institution, Carl's. And I'm, well, it's glad, I'm glad to hear that you would do Carl's. Because oh, of yeah. Like yeah. Sorry for the confusion. I mean, come on. <laughs> you can take the boy out of New Hampshire, but. <laughs> no, no, true, true. Well, R.I.P. Carl, because uh, it was sad to sad to read that you had gone. Yeah, but we were probably that wasn't on our that wasn't on our radar. Are you going to be in Durham for Thanksgiving? Yeah, I will be. You? Okay, let's do it. Let's get together. Yeah, you're going to be there. Oh, good, yeah. good, good, good. How many days do you know? Uh, we'll probably be there Wednesday through either Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, same. Good. Is do you know if there's going to be a, a a pickup football game this year? I haven't heard. I will th- when I hang up with you. I will reach out and find out because if there is, we should get, we got to play. I would love that. Even in my son Will, he really enjoyed that one time that he took part. He asks if we're going to do that again. It hasn't happened in the last couple of years, so hopefully we can make that happen. Let's, we can make it happen, and if not that, we got to we'll, we'll get the fans together. 
I know. Well, we'll get together for a hang regardless. Yeah. But, you know, I've been really in this is folks. Now we're just like t- talking about our personal lives on the after party. But, you know, you've been with us a while. You know how we roll. Um, I, I really have a hankering to go see a UNH hockey game um, with 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 you and your dad and, and Grayson and me and my dad and, and the kids. I just feel like that would be an amazing thing to, to take in together. They're having a great year and like, it's not Snively arena anymore. lively, Snively, but like those were the days, right? I mean, maybe I do want to li- relive the glory day of the UNH hockey experience. I want my kids to like see the, that frenzy of, of what a college hockey game in Durham, New Hampshire is all about. Yeah. If you can't, if there are no bleachers to run under, Right. It's not the same. It's not the same. I think I had my first kiss under the bleachers at Snively Arena. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. With a girl who didn't even live in our district. She just came with her dad or her grandpa to the UNH games, you know? Yeah. And just fell, fell love at first sight with Michael Miranda. Or or she was looking for a puck and just bumped into me or something. (laughs) 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 It's probably that. You said you seized the moment. You seized the day. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Well, folks, nothing you heard here should be taken as medical advice as neither Mike nor I are medical experts. Remember that you are light, you are love, and you are your primary health care provider. Thanks for tuning in. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye.